The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the Two Man Power Trip. Hi, folks. I'm WWE Hall of Famer Hacksaw Jim Duggan. If you'd like hearing knock knock jokes or jokes about your grandmother, go somewhere else. Oh! Oh my God! This is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the Two Man Power Trip podcast. This is Cody Rhodes, and you are listening to Two Man Power Trip. Good. How you doing, Chad? Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Okay. Uh, this is a uh, special visitor, the hardcore legend, Mick Foley. It was a very rough feud to go through with Rick. It was a very bitter feud, too. He certainly didn't like me at that time. And I didn't like him, and we were both trying to be at the top. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Well, look, Mean Gene, I can't be beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that. And every kid, I, they knew they could kick the out of me. At this point, well, I'll be at a signing, and little kids will come up to me and throw up the click sign or talk about, oh, your ladder match with Sean at WrestleMania 10. I go, wait a minute, you weren't even a glimmer in your dad's eye. But yeah, bro, it's really flattering and, and amazing and humbling. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling, and now they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of まさにこの時の2人は岩流島での決闘に向かう宮本武蔵と佐々木小次郎であったのかもしれません。約85センチ、95.25キログラム。UKF、IHK世界ヘビー級、KICK世界スーパーヘビー級、WKF世界無駄
flagship show, a part of the two-man power trip of wrestling's podcast empire. I am your host, JP John Paz, and on today's show, we have a combat sports legend and absolute icon, Slammin' Sam. Yes, Sam Greco joins the two-man power trip, and on today's episode, we're talking all about his combat sports career. We go from kickboxing to karate to pro wrestling to MMA. We talk about everything that he's done in his remarkable career and we of course do talk about his humble beginnings as well so I mean we run the gamut we go all the way from the beginning all the way to the end and even his health issues that he had a couple years ago which is shocking for a man in, in that great of shape and a man that was you know known as such an ass kicker had to deal with some hereditary problems as far as heart attacks and stuff. He said it kind of runs in the family, and it's just crazy to think you could be in that great of shape and just all of a sudden have these heart attacks. He had a triple bypass, then he had another heart issue. But you'll hear a great story about how he was cornering a guy and wanted to make sure he cornered him throughout the whole fight, even though he knew he was having a heart attack. That's how tough he is, and we learn where he got that toughness from, and it was definitely from his father. And towards the end of the interview, you you will hear a great, great story about his father and about the toughness that kind of lies within that family for sure. Now, going through his many world championships in kickboxing, his many world championships in karate, we do find out that Wikipedia is not always the greatest source if you want to really find out a guy's true combat sports record. When you really look at it, kickboxing, 19 wins. Then you go to MMA, he had three wins, really should be four, and he really only had five MMA fights. Three wins, one controversial split decision loss to a very legendary Leota Machida, and then one draw. And then we talk about, obviously, the encompassing, all-encompassing record that he had in combat sports. Basically, 131, 11, 2, and 2. So 131 wins, 11 losses, two draws, two no contests. I mean, just insane, remarkable that you can actually have that many wins and just be that dominant in combat sports and if you really look at his resume and the guys that he fought it's like wow how the hell you know did he get through that and really accomplish all that it's just insane just goes to show you what a true legend sam greco is in the combat sports world we also talk about a wcw the power plan his relationship with eric bischoff paul orndorff his training and how he found and basically brought up into prominence the very legendary Bob Sapp and the relationship that he has with him. Bob Sapp, obviously, former guest of two-man power trip. You know, one of the most charismatic men ever in the history of combat sports. Also dabbled in pro wrestling as well. We talk about his time in All Japan, a little bit of Wrestle 1, and kind of everything in between we'll talk about as far as pro wrestling and of course we do get into retirement injuries and some other fun stuff as well now before i kind of kick it off to the two-man power trip of wrestling business and then get get you on over to the episode itself and the interview want to also mention rick bassman's talking tough which is available on a podcast one also the three-way dance which is also part of rick bassman's talking tough is on podcast one as well we have dr tom Dr. Tom Pritchard, Taking You to School, which is available on the two-man power trip of wrestling feed. We have Dirty Dutch, Dirty Dutch Mantel, 
And we have the University of Dutch podcast, which is available on MLW Radio. And, of course, Shane Douglas, yes, his Triple Threat podcast available on the Russo brand and also on Realm Network. Now we can kick it on off over to the kickboxing karate world champion and absolute legend, K1 icon, Slam It Sam, Sam Greco. And now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and at Raslin Pal. Subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a review. We would love to hear your feedback. Check out the feed for awesome past episodes, including Bruno San Martino, Sean Michael, Dusty Rhodes, Jerry Lawler, Terry Funk. Goldberg, Ray Mysterio Jr., Arn Anderson, Glenn Kane Jacobs, and so many more. While you're on the web, visit ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, that is ProWrestlingTees.com. Visit our store, visit J.J. Dillon's store, Francine's store, and of course, the franchise Shane Douglas' store. For all you Android users out there, find us on Google Play and Player FM. For all you iOS users, check us out on TuneIn Radio, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Podomatic, and now Stitcher. And of course, check out the Empire. Yes, that is the TMPT Empire now. TMPTEmpire.com for all the latest and greatest on the two-man power trip of wrestling. is a kickboxing karate world champion. He is an absolute combat sports legend. You may know him in the wrestling world from WCW, All Japan, Russell won, but you definitely know him as a K1 superstar. He is Slam It Sam, Sam Greco. Welcome to the two-man power trip. Hey, g'day, John. How you doing? Doing great. What in the world have you been up to? I know you're all the way over in Sydney, Australia. So it's actually a, I mean, excuse me, a Melbourne, Australia. So it's completely a different day over there than it is here. But what have you been up to? Well, pretty much. I think we can all sum up. Well, we've all been doing exactly the same things. We've been staying at home um, in isolation due to this COVID-19, which has affected the world, it has affected us worldwide. But other than that, um, obviously, you know, grew up, um, in the the martial arts world and just continuing with that just enjoying my journey and um doing a lot of online stuff with students which has been good how is it that you can kind of stay in shape during this i feel like a lot of people would probably gain weight right i mean during this time is it hard to stay in shape i i think what's hard is the psychological side of things um which in effect affects the the, the physical I think if you've been doing it all your life like I have, um, 
and most other pro athletes, it's probably a lot easier becomes it becomes part of your life, it becomes a bit day doing. And if you don't, you don't feel good about yourself. Um, and it's indirectly, it acts like a drug. So for me, um, getting up and doing work is just part of my everyday ritual. That's that's what it is, and it just makes me feel good. It's just basically my drug to making me feel good and giving me a great euphoric feeling. Do you think that it's easier almost to connect with people right now? Everyone's home. I know you say it's like psychological. It's it's hard to like get yourself going, so you might gain some weight. But you think it's easier to actually connect with your students and with people now because it's like, hey, just everyone's home. Hit hit up Zoom or hit up Skype or you know, is it easier to connect? Look, it definitely is easy to connect. But one of the things that I found that over the period of time and the longer this. Uh, isolation stays on, the worse the thing it's going to get is is breaking that boredom, is breaking that monotony. You know, what are you going to do? There's a certain amount of things that you can do online and then there's a certain amount of things you, you can't do online because it just doesn't go through with impact, if that makes sense, and what motivates people. Um, so you've really got to be creative online. And one of the things that I found with students is besides training students online is sitting down doing, you know, half hour or three quarter of an hour or one hour talks where I sit down and talk about the psychology of sport and, um, you know, how to get to your goals. And I do a lot of motivational, inspirational stuff, which I found has combated all that boredom. Now, obviously, you know, we kind of touched on it. Um, you're in Australia. Everyone kind of knows it's the other side of the world, but you were kind of talking about it a little bit. It's underpopulated. It, it, it's such a big place, but it's underpopulated. I know that be, uh, for my sister living over there. But what is it like over there in Australia? Because I didn't realize how many people were there, really. And you were saying that it's actually more populated in Tokyo, Japan. Yeah, at least. Look, we, we, I live in a very, very big country, and um, a country where we only have 25 million people, probably 26, to be probably more accurate. And to compare it, um, I mean, I lived in Japan, and Japan has a total population of 150 million, which is the size of Victoria, which is a state I live in. And we've got a population of, of nearly four to five million in Victoria. So we're definitely underpopulated. Um, we probably could do with double or triple and still have enough room. We've got a lot, a lot of greenery, and that's why people love coming out here. A lot of sightseeing. Now, of course, everyone knows you as a combat sports legend. You've done kickboxing, bare knuckle, uh, big, big K1 star. You've done some pro wrestling. But kind of how did you get into kind of kind of the sports genre? Because you really didn't start with combat sports, right? You kind of started with soccer uh, first. Exactly right, yeah. I started with, started with soccer as a kid. And I was very successful, to be quite honest. And um, spending 10 years with one of the major leagues here in uh, in Australia, which was equivalent to what the top league is today here in Australia, um, at the age of 16, I was playing for the senior side, which was the first, and um, and I was getting paid brutally, you know, compared to, oh, put it this way, I was getting paid, I was still at school getting paid to play soccer, which was unheard of for a kid who was 15 turning 16. Um, but due to contract issues after that, in which my parents didn't have the money to, uh, to fight the system, um, Basically, my parents gave me an ultimatum. Look, we don't have the money to uh, to take um, the team to court um, for whatever reason. And they said, look, it's either one or the other. You either give it up or you change sides. And I really didn't want to change sides because I loved the team I was with. But they left me no choice but to uh, to stop. Parents didn't have the funds to uh, to fight it. So 
that was my my dad that uh, asked me whether I wanted to do karate or not. Uh, my sister was doing it at the time, but purely he wanted me to do it purely for self-defense and respect and discipline, to be quite honest. He wanted me to do traditional art, and that's what he, he got me doing. And I hated it. I've got to admit, the first month that I was actually doing it, uh, I despised it. I really did. You know, putting on a karate suit or a doggy or gi, uh, bowing to instructors and being disciplined and being quiet all the way through, you know, coming from a kid who was rowdy, growing up being rowdy. Um, yeah, it just didn't agree with me and until you know, time passed two, three months later and I just found a liking to it. I really did. That is interesting that you didn't like it at first because it seems like you'd be uh, just a, a natural fit just given your career. But that's interesting at first you, you kind of didn't take to it. When you started kind of getting going and started doing it competitively, did you then kind of feel like, okay, this is coming natural to me, this is easy to me, I, I can excel at this? Yeah, look, I, I really, even as a young kid, I always strive for excellence. Um, I never wanted to be the average Joe. I just think there's too many average people around. I always wanted to be different. And one of the things that I always did in whatever sport I did, whatever competition I did, I tried to excel as much as I could. And I was never afraid of failure, ever. I was afraid of not trying. That was probably most most like I was afraid of not training. And that sort of come from my dad too, because my dad always told me to fulfill things to their fullest. Um, and no, I did find a liking to it. I, I, I really, I used to come home and from training and want to go back. And to me, that became part of my life. You know, I called out more about sport than what I did about school. And that created a bit of a problem in the household too, because my grades were down, but my sporting activities were quite high. Um, and then I had to had a battle to fight with my parents then, you know, trying to get my grades up at school, which oh, academically I was never the smart kid. You know, I wasn't the most silliest of kid, but I was always in the mid-class. That was one of the things I didn't excel at um, because my brain and body were sort of overtaken by the love of, of sport itself. So when you're moving along, how do you kind of get professional fights? Like how did how did you get noticed? How do you start kind of putting yourself out there on the map? Well, look, you know, I had 96 full contact karate fights to start off with, and that was sort of my my backbone, my strength to where I am today. Um, that taught me respect, discipline, everything else. But fighting through those, I, I pretty much cleaned up my own backyard, so to speak. Within Australia, I pretty much won five to six uh, national titles and state titles and then became a Commonwealth champion here. And then eventually I excelled and I thought, you know what, I want to start teaching also um, because I always believe that you don't start learning as a white belt, but you actually start learning as a black belt, to be quite honest, because that's when you really got to put your best foot forward and start teaching others and the others are going to be a reflection of what you're teaching. Um, so to me, that was a massive challenge. And like I said, I love challenges. That's what inspires me. But um, I thought to myself, well, you know, I am teaching karate now and I want to teach kickboxing, but in order to teach kickboxing, I really have to work out and actually do kickboxing myself to actually give people an insight of what it's actually like to get punched in the head. So that's exactly what I did. And boy, was it hard at the start. You know, it was one of those things again, you know, can I handle copping this punch in the head all the time? And there was a lot of questions here in Australia. People were saying, you know, you'll never ever make it. You'll never ever do it. You know, you might be a great full contact karate fighter and a world champion is a full contact karate fighter. But punching to the head is quite different. And which they were, they're 100% right. It was different. 
But at hell was I just going to walk away from it. You know, I just uh, went to the best trainers I could here in Australia until I finally got some money together and went overseas and trained with the Japanese and the Dutch. And you know what? I made it because I wanted to make it. Got the best trainers in the world. And my first K1 fight, which K1, for those that, that don't know, K1 was the biggest kickboxing organization in the world. Um, it was basically what the UFC is today. Probably ahead of its time, to be quite honest. And that was back in 93. My first fight there was in 94, and they offered me their world champion first up. There was no easy take there, and I fought their world champion and knocked him out in the second round, and that's where my life changed. That was it. It was all up from there. That is pretty great that K1, what you said, which is just huge at that point. I mean, yeah. the, the, the tops, I mean, that, that is where you want to be. That was where the money was too, right? Oh, exactly. And like I said, we're ahead of our time. I mean, I have a look at the UFC. I mean, I've got UFC fighters that I that I train that currently still fight. And, you know, I look at where we were back in the night. And honestly, we might not have had the, you know, the high pay-per-view stuff, but we're well ahead of our time in terms of being paid and so on. But, you know, people often say, and that's the argument of today's on today's social media with fighters in the UFC, you're stipulating they're not being paid enough. We're exactly the same. But I think when we weigh it up, we're actually paid okay, to be quite honest. Now, K1, as you're kind of going along, like you said, really kind of no easy fights. I mean, they throw you a Peter Ertz very, very early on, which, you know, a huge legend. Any of that, like, intimidate you, surprise you at all, or, or is that kind of just what they do over there? Do you know, it, it was quite interesting. My, as I said to you, my first fight, and no, you're right. It's exactly what they do. The Japanese have no filters. The Japanese run the best shows in the world, or were running the best shows in the world in terms of K1. And as far as they're concerned, it's all about entertainment. It was all about having the best fights on. They cared about their fighters, and they protected their fighters, but not in the sense of protecting them by giving them easy fights. It was always hard, entertaining fights. But that's what made us the K1 brothers that we are around the world today, that we can look back... Every fight was just a battle. It was going to war. We could fight each other once. We could fight each other twice or three times. And the crowds would still turn up in flocks, you know, from, from 30,000 up to 70,000, 80,000 people, you know, watching it. And it was always entertaining for them. There was no such thing as a boring fight. It was challenging day in, day out. So you had to be on your best game. I mean, guys like Peter Ertz, I fought twice. Andy Hug, three times. Um, you know, Ernesto Hoos, twice. I fought all the major guys, you know, I've beaten them. I've been beaten. I've drawn with them. But at the end of the day, it's been an absolute honour stepping in that you know the war zone with them. What did you think about Peter or twenty first? Like got in there. Was that intimidating though at all? Because that's like uh, yeah, I, just to throw you to the fire. First up, uh, much Peter Ertz was basically my um, was he my second second fight in Japan? Yeah, after I beat mm -hmm. the world champion, the Japanese yes. thought, wow, we've got a good one here. So they put me up against Peter Ertz. I had no idea who Peter Ertz was. I did some research and found out he was a world champion at the time, as young as he was, and he was a Dutch world champion. And I thought, wow. And I spoke to my training team and they said, you know, we've got a battle on our hands. You can either not take this or take it. We've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. And it's a win-win situation, you know. They knew I wasn't going to go down without a fight anyway. So I said, let's take it. So the Japanese were quite intrigued that I did take on those fights because the Japanese come from a karate background, and there's a lot of respect in there. And that's what they were trying to do. They were trying to get the best karate fighters versus the best kickboxers and then convert us slowly. 
that's how it all started. And myself and Andy Hug um, uh, were probably one of the very few that, that made that real hard transition. And was I intim intimidated with Peter Earth? Hell yeah, of course I was intimidated finding out exactly who he was. But once I stepped through those ropes that day, that fear that I had turned into positivity. Um, this was the first fight I had with him. I went the distance with him, five rounds. I got dropped two or three times in one round with body shots, uh, but he couldn't finish me off. And that fight there, even though I got beaten, actually made and stipulated me on the world circuit. You know, it put me on the world circuit. It wasn't about just winning. That's the thing with the Japanese crowds. It's not about winning. It's about your performance. It's about that you've, you've got to have really that samurai, that warrior heart and brain, so to speak, and don't give up attitude. And that's what I that's what I won over on that day. And Peter Ertz himself said it at the end of that that fight. He says he's one of the, this this guy here is one of the hardest guys that I fought so far. And watch out for him. And he was right. The Japanese love the fighting spirit. You don't have to. You're right. You don't have to necessarily win, but they love the fighting spirit. The day, you know, winning was always great. But if you put up a performance where you just showed heart intelligence and all that they absolutely loved you there was that's just thing honest to god i can't to this very day people often ask me this but to this to this to this very day i, I can't recall anyone ever booing in a stadium not just for me i mean for other fighters too you know the japanese are either applaud it and go back to watching the event or will have nothing to say if they've got nothing nice to say they won't say anything yeah so that was quite interesting it's a beautiful place. It became my second home. I've been backwards and forth for nearly 20 years there. Such a great place and obviously filled with honor and filled with great fighters and very, very cool. And kind of as you go through K1, you're right. They never give you an easy fight. It's funny, like Mushashi, they throw you at twice. Jerome LeBanner, they throw you at. I mean, there is no kind of yeah. relenting. No, I, I fought all those guys. I mean, I, I'll call them out. There's, there's Peter Ertz and Nesta, who's, who's Mike Bernardo, Jerome Labana, Masashi. Um, then you've got Satake. You've got Matt Skelton. All these guys were just, within themselves, they were very talented and they were just monsters. They were really monsters. But honest to God, it was. I'm so proud that I went to war with every single one of these guys, not once, not twice, sometimes three times. So... It's to me, it's an absolute honor. There was so much respect between us that, you know, before the fight and after the fight, we're total brothers. You know, we 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 drink together, eat together. At times, we'd even train together. We'd socialize together. There was a lot of respect. Once you step through those ropes, it was goddamn fucking business. That's simple as that. There was no two ways about it. What do you think of Jerome LeBanner? Just to kind of touch on a, just a few of the great super, fighters. Super super tough. Uh, the first time I fought Jerome, they called it a draw. I actually thought I won that. You know, I look back over it today and I thought I won that, but irrespective, it was a draw. The second time I fought him, you know, without making any excuses, I did have a broken eardrum two and a half weeks, weeks prior to the event, um, busted my eardrum, obviously lost my balance and everything at training. But because it was a main event, the promoter himself, and this is how, this is how they sacrifice you, actually, the Japanese to a certain degree, when you become one of their own, which myself and Andy were, um, they'll sacrifice you. They'll, they'll slaughter you if they have to. Still care for you, but they'll slaughter you. They basically said, yeah, we need you to fight. You're a main event. And 
And I just said, look, I need to get my ear checked out. And sure enough, I had a perforated eardrum bleeding. Um, was was to get in it for the next you know, week. So I continued my training the best I could with whatever I had. And I was in peak performance anyway, peak shape. Um, and I took the fight on purely with a bit of pressure from the promoter too, because he didn't want to lose that in their fight, couldn't replace it. And um, I took that fight on. Everything went to plan the start. I felt good. I dropped Labana with a head kick, open, opening head kick. He got back up and then I dropped him with a knee and a right hand. That was twice. And they've got a three, three knockdown rule in K1. And the bell saved him. He came out in the second round. We touched gloves and he's kicked me and my glove was against my ear at the time. And it's just caused this like vacuum again in my ear. It's just popped. I knew straight away I was gone and I just lost my balance. And my whole demeanor just changed. I wasn't that aggressive slamming Sam Greco anymore. I was on, more on the back foot because I was just trying to gain that balance. And he, I think he sensed that he might have hurt me. He didn't actually hurt me. I basically popped my eardrum again. And by the time I sat on the ropes, he hit me with a straight left, straight left hand right on the chin. And he bucked completely. And uh, I, I hit the ground, got back up, but I was pretty much gone anyway um, when I got back up and... They called the fight and he won that. So that was sort of disappointing. I mean, if I could if I could turn back the tables, um, I know I could beat Jerome Labana. But, hey, those days are done now, and I, I, I'm just very respectful that I fought the guy, you know, mm-hmm. numerous times. Yes. Would I have loved to have finished off on another note? Oh, yeah, 100%. You know, given another five seconds in that first round, um, it would have been all over for him. He already got knocked down twice in the first round. But, hey... That's the that's the luck of the draw. That's what happens in the fight game. You know, I've seen fights turn around in in a matter of a blink of an eye. You know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I was just saying, what the second time I fought Peter Ertz was the same. You know, um, I won the first round. It was a ten nine round. Second round, it was perfect. I hit Peter with a right hand, caught him flush. As I hit him with the right, rather than hitting him on the chin, I hit him on the forehead, and he's throwing a head kick at the same time. Caught me flush. Boom, dropped me. And that's the way it goes. You know, it's, do, am I am I angry? Am I upset? No, it's it happens. I'm healthy. I must admit, for three months I couldn't hear through my left ear. I was bleeding. I had internal bleeding, so I had to get it drained constantly. So my health, I had to sort of put my health in perspective there, and thought I'd just be grateful that I got out of this alive. Yeah, crazy kind of injury to have there. I mean, that's uh, obviously you can mess up your balance big time. Uh, you might not be able to walk or run, let alone fight. Oh, look, look, you're 100% right. And I, I think you've got to be grateful that, you know, look after yourself too, that you live to see another day or another fight. But I learned more, and this is the honest truth, I learned more out of my, out of my losses than I did uh, out of my wins, to be quite honest. I had so much to learn from my losses, just simple mistakes. And sometimes it's just sheer luck and bad luck. And that's the honest truth. Um, but I honestly, I could say that I pretty much gave it everything every time I walked, stepped in that in that um, ring. I don't think I've ever walked in without an injury. That's a bruise, knock, perforated eardrum, whatever you call it. Um, but that was it. If I really had to rely around being totally 100% where my body feels super, super fantastic, I probably would never have thought. It's just the amount of time and the amount of hours you put your your mind and body through that people don't understand. They look at a fight that could last 10 seconds, could last, you know, 25 minutes. Um, 
But then again, to, for a fight that could last five rounds in K1, five threes, sorry, you know, 15, minute, 15 minutes, I mean, you still got to put in 200 hours of training. Yeah, the knocks, the bumps, the falls, the, in, the injuries. Yeah, there's just so much you got to look at for a fight that could last one second, could last five seconds, could last 15 minutes. You don't know, but you train the same. So I think it's more, more so people say, is it the, the fight that hurts you or is it the, no, it's the training that hurts you more than anything else. Do you think that you could possibly like overtrain and, and almost injure yourself that way more so than an actual fight? Yep, you're 100% right. And I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I think it, initially when I first started back in the 80s, especially through karate, it was like, um, you know, Sam, you've got to train. It doesn't matter. Now you've got an injury, it doesn't matter. You've got to train. So I used to train through injuries. And what I was actually doing is actually stepping backwards rather than stepping forwards in life. And um, I realized later on when my body wasn't recovered and I, and I was getting sick, you know, getting cold, getting the flu, that one of the sports physicians that I went to see um, through through a friend of mine, uh, which he, he enabled me to go and see him then, he, he said to me, so I went to see the sports physician and he said to me, he says, what's your training plan like? And I told him about my training plan, the amount of times I was training and what I was eating and the amount of hours I was sleeping. And I was just torturing my body. Basically, he said to me, it's just the amount of fuel you're putting in your body in terms of food isn't sufficient. The amount of rest you're having isn't sufficient. And he made me realize that rest and recovery and rehab is a lot more important than training within itself. So, yes, the answer to your question is yes, you can overtrain. Have I been down that path? Yes, I have. But I learned early in the stage what to do and what not to do. As far as some of the other guys, I just wanted to touch on. You mentioned Andy Hug a few times and kind of that karate, the kickboxing guy, obviously huge legend. What did you think of, of Andy? Well, Andy and I have a personal had a personal relationship. Um, we both come from a Kyokushin background. Um, when Andy made Andy made the transition to K1 or Sato Kaikan, which was the backbone of K1, um, the year before I did. Um, we were the sort of the talk of the town, talk of the world, you know, because no one ever left uh, Kyokushin. Kyokushin was a renowned art all over the world. The uh, Oyama, Sose Oyama, who was the big boss, had at the time, I think, 17 million students, which we were all part of worldwide. And it was the strongest karate in the world um, for a reason. And uh, Andy and I were the first two to leave Kyokushin, which was unheard of. And we were the talk of the town in a very negative way. People were saying, you know, you know, it's very regretful what you've done. You shouldn't have done it. But the truth of the matter is, from my perspective, I love the sport so much that I need to make a living out of it. And doing karate, bare knuckle karate, I was, it was actually costing me money to travel and to go and train and to be here and to be there and paying fees and doing all this. So I was actually trying to make something out of the sport, but financially it wasn't bringing anything back. So... I was offered an opportunity um, in a company called Sato Kaikan, which was a breakaway, mind you, from Kyokushin itself. And they were actually paying their athletes to live on campus and train, and they were paying them to compete and paying them also as a bonus to win. So to me, to me it worked in the situation. But I didn't just walk away from the organisation. I actually had a meeting with a big boss, Sose Oyama, over in Singapore. And let me tell you, Sitting in his hotel room, I was absolutely perspiring like crazy talking to him, but telling him that I wanted to leave because of I wanted to make a living out of something 
didn't go down well with him at all. But true to his word at the end, um, and a few days later, I received an email off him, and he was wishing me all the best. And he, but he said the doors will always be open for me if I ever wanted to go back, which I really didn't. But um, I'm glad we saw eye to eye. But Andy just left, probably on just probably miserable terms, to be quite honest. It sort of didn't end well for him um, leaving the organisation. But hey, it might not have ended well with Kyokushin, but God, did he make a lot of money and um, put him up, put himself up there with uh, K1 and Sato Kaiko, you know. We both won world titles. He won the world title, I think, a year before me, and then I won it back in 94, in 90 or 92, actually. Um, so, yeah, it was quite interesting, quite interesting. Um, Andy was like a brother to me. We lived together. We trained together in Japan. He spent time with me in Melbourne, Australia. Um, Andy was, was, was a true brother to me. I was probably one of the closest ones to him. Um, we shared a lot of things, a lot of great times too. But uh, to see him go back in 2000 was um, super, super tragic for me. Such a and young age. Yeah, such a young age. Years of age. Look, I still question the fact. I really, really do. Andy was the type I thought I was hard mentally, which I was. But Andy was was also under the pressure of the Japanese too, wanting him to appear and do appearances and fight here and fight there constantly. And... Um, I don't think Andy really gave his body time to rest. Um, they say he died from a blood disorder such as leukemia, um, but Jesus, it was quick, quick. It was in two or three months. It was ridiculous. Well, I've never seen anything perish so quick, and uh, we lost a very, very good man who was le was legendary status alive and still his legendary status dead. Doesn't matter. Um, he's got a lot of respect from from a lot, a lot of the world. Uh, athletes, not just in karate, but in all the fight sports. And uh, yeah, he's missed. He's really is missed. And it just brings a tear to my eye, to be honest. Yeah, very sad. Obviously, you know, still in his prime pretty much at, at that point, too, which is uh, even sadder. You think great, great career still, you know, going on. I mean, it's crazy to think of. Mm, he was one of the only guys that, that I'd fought, that I'd talked to while I was fighting. <laughs> and he talked to me. He, 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 I'd hit him, and he goes, "Hit him!" And he goes, "Where me?" And I said, "It's not finished yet, you know." So, and we'd go at it. You know, people would know us as good friends, but to see us punch on and really, you know, get it on in the ring as if we wanted to kill each other, and then when we walked out, we we embraced each other was just amazing. And that happened not just with me and him; it happened with most K1 fighters. That's what it was—real brotherhood. It's not like the UFCs today. It's not like any glory. You know, it's it's very egotistical to a certain degree. Um, but in K1, there was total brotherhood. I can honestly say that. There was so much respect between fighters. Um, it was unbelievable. Unbelievable. You couldn't buy it. You couldn't press conferences, you know, be in suits. People would be in suits. You weren't allowed to go in, you know, in sweat in sweatshirts and sweatpants or runners or sneakers. You had to wear a, You had to wear a suit. You had to wear a tie. You had to wear a jacket. You know, you rocked up to a to a conference in any of those uh, you know, sweatpants and runners, they, they wouldn't let you sit. Oh, very, very, it was professionalism. That's why I said we we're ahead of our time. I'll throw another guy at you, huge legend. You kind of mentioned him before. You beat him, lost to him. Ernesto Hoost, what did you think about fighting him? Ernesto Hoost, they call him Mr. Perfect for a reason. The guy has explicit timing. 
and his technique is flawless. He 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 really is um, a master technician. They call him Mr. Perfect for a reason. But it was interesting. Ernesto Hoost was a guy that, sure, I feared to a certain degree, but that's what drove me to beat him at times. Um, the first time I, th I, I, I fought him, um, I split my shin that day, which I required 13 stitches, uh, and the fight got called because I couldn't come out. And he won that fight, which was all well and fine, but I had a vendetta at the end, and I knew I was going to fight him again, which I didn't absolutely stop him. Open hitting for the next round. You know, I think it was the third round. Um, I had it all over him. But hey, Ernesto Hoost, I got a, a lot of admiration for. I've learned a lot from him, um, and just his tenacity when he's in there and he's hungry. He just most of the Dutch fighters were identically the same, to be quite honest. They just had this will that they just they were the best in the world and wanted to wanted to continue being the best and being the best also. But this little Aussie here, well, I was a battler. You know, I wasn't the most gifted um, gifted kickboxer around or K1 fighter around, but boy, was I going to give you a, you know, was I going to give you a go? I fought Branko Sikatek. Branko Sikatek was the first guy to win the K1. Mm -hmm. I ended yep. up putting him asleep. I probably hit him. I probably hit him with about, you know, I blame the referee for not stopping the fight earlier, but I probably hit him with about 20 or 30 punches too many. You know, we lost. We lost the great Branko Sikatek. Um, was it early this year? I think we lost him, or late last year we lost him also. So a few good ones died also. You, Mike Bernardo, Andy Hug, Branko Sikatek, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think Branko, didn't so he great. die a couple of months ago, I think? I think it was recent. Yeah, Dan Branko. Yeah. Yeah, recently. That's what I was just saying, yeah. So um, I remember fighting him was was a beautiful honour, fighting him. And obviously I'm glad that I beat him. But as I said, the referee didn't do his job that day. He should have stopped the fight a lot earlier. Branko got really hurt that day. A lot but of... in, in in what, yeah, in yeah, it just got got KO'd. It was it was out. He was asleep. He was asleep mm -hmm. on his feet. Oh god. Um, yeah, but as you said about Ernesto Hoost, they don't call him you know Mr. Perfect for nothing. Let me tell you, I've seen him do things that you'd only dream of. But um, like I said, I'm grateful that I fought him, and I'm grateful that you know, I got to share the ring with him, and I'm, I'm grateful that I beat him also. So, some great wins you had, like you mentioned. Against Bronco, but Mike Bernardo, another legend, obviously got too soon. Uh, Stefan Lecco, you beat. Nice victory. And then, of course, Ray Seppo, who's a, another great win. So, I mean, some really high-profile great wins you had. Yeah, look, as I said to you, each of those guys, each of those guys had something to bring to the table. Each of those guys had strengths, which could have created some weaknesses in me also. But it's like everything, you know, whether I was studying for a fight, or for a training sparring session, or irrespective, I used to, I used to you know, cross my T's and dot my I's all the time, and um, used to do everything, leave no stone unturned when I walked in there. You know, uh, the only thing that was going to beat me that day would have been myself, and nothing else. You know, unless you had sheer bad luck, that was about it. But uh, other than that, you know, even guys like Ray Sefu, another another absolute legend of an individual and great K1 fighter, and I had the, you know. The honour to share the ring with him. Um, I fought him in the K1 Grand Prix. I think it was in '99. He was my my first fight. I think because you have three fights in one day, and I ended up beating him, stopping him. Um, but Ray put on a fight, man. Ray can box the hell out of anyone, even today. He's just unbelievable. Got a lot of admiration for him. And then I fought Andy Hug in the next fight, in the top four in the world that day. And 
Uh, we went the distance, and um, I thought I might have had an edge over him, but they gave it to him. Obviously, Andy being the favourite in Japan stands to reason. And then uh, Andy was that worn out. He fought Peter Ertz in the final. I think that was for about 400,000 American, that prize, and uh, he ended up getting stopped with a head kick. But Andy was exhausted was exhausted even stepping in that stepping in that fight. So, so uh, yeah, in terms of having great battles, no regrets. I can only, I can sleep proud, put it that way. I can walk with my chin up high and say, you know, I've done, I've done, I've done it all and I've done it in the elite level. You know, some people dream to be at that level. Will we ever see another K1 as, as before, you know, from the era from 90, from 92 or 93 to 2002, 2003? Never. It's all done. That's for sure. What about a guy, maybe almost like a passing of the torch, Mirko Krokop, when he beat you? Was that kind of one of those things where like, he was like the next up-and-coming great guy, great fighter? Obviously a legendary MMA fighter as well. Well, it was quite interesting. I, that, I fought, I fought um, Mirko in a Grand Prix event. Um, Who did I fight first? Was it Leko I fought first? I beat one of the guys first and then fought Mirko in the the top four in the world and the same we're having three fights in a day for the Grand Prix and oh that's right yeah I'd hurt my ankle prior coming to Japan but irrespective I had cortisone shots in it painkillers which seemed to do the job but I did hurt in the first fight even though I won went into the next fight I kicked um kicked Krokop um and kept cutting the distance on him so he couldn't do his signature move that he does that big high kick that he hospitalizes people. Yes. Um, and I wasn't going to fall for it. And there was no way he was going to get me, which he didn't, as you saw, if you've watched the fight. But I've kicked him and I've actually hurt my ankle again. And he's realized, but he's actually thought, oh, I'm going to attack his back leg, which he did. And he dropped me. I got back up, fought on. But my leg was wasted. But during the fight, I actually knew I broke Mirko's ribs with a body kick. And he was going into the final with Ernesto Hoost. And I remember walking down the back that day and I saw Nesta Hoost's room. I walked in there and I was congratulating him, saying, mate, all the best for the final. I said, do you know that uh, his rib's broken? And he turned to me and he says, I know, brother. He goes, leave it to me. I said, well, don't forget me when the prize money comes out. <laughs> I've made your life easy. And he went out there and pretty much disposed of Mirko in the space of, you know, a minute or two, hit him in the body and just dropped him. So luck's, luck has to be on your side too at any given time in this game. So I've always been close to that cherry, you know, of winning that K1 Grand Prix. Um, but, yeah, just keep falling short because of an injury, because of something. But, hey, that's it. You know, not much you can do. Now, you fight Ernesto Hoost about five months later or so, and that was kind of your last fight for about three years until Peter Graham, which I guess was your final fight. What was the kind of the reason for basically leaving the sport for three years? Injuries? Okay. So basically, um, as, I, as I said to you, injuries took their toll. Um, and my right shin, I told you that I'd split it between. I split it with Andy Hug fighting Andy Hug, and I split it again fighting um, Benisto Hoost. But what had happened when I had x-rays and MRI scans on it, I had a whole fracture straight through my shin. So my medical staff and medical team had advised me that I needed six to 12 months off. If I would have continued fighting and kicking with that shin, I would have broken it completely. They would have to put a steel rod through it. So 
I was coming towards the end of my contract also, so I thought it was probably time that I needed to take a break, um, in which I did. So between that time, K1 said to me, hey, you know, we want to renege a contract. I said, don't do any contracts. I said, for the time being, because I need 12 months off. I need a solid 12 months off. I need to give my body a rest. They weren't happy about it. Um, and it was during that time that uh, I got a call from the States from a friend of mine who knew Paul Ornoff. Um, so my layoff was because I was in the, I was in the United States living in Atlanta, Georgia, when I joined and signed up with WCW. That was my layoff. And you joined the infamous power plants of WCW. I did, did indeed. But on the proviso, you know, on the conditions that there was no hard contact with my shin, um, I looked at all the avenues. I remember speaking to Paul Orndorff, who was my coach at the time, Mr. Wonderful there, and he assured me, he says, no, you can work around that, Sam. It's not like, you know, what you normally do. And the truth was, it was so right because, you know, the difference between fighting and wrestling was – Fighting was about me versus you. Wrestling is about me and you versus the crowd. Even though you got a heel and a baby face, it was the beautiful because it was just entertainment. And you could make do with whatever. You could work around things. It was so good. And and that's why uh, at the time, Eric Bischoff, to be quite honest, and Eric Bischoff, if you're well aware, is, is a great martial arts enthusiast. Yes. Big time. And... Um... Was uh, used to be or used to do uh, professional uh, rounds with karate for sure, but he is definitely a martial arts enthusiast. Obviously, he was kind of taking over or retaking over WCW again around that point, and definitely had interest in you and, and guys like Bob Sapp as well. Who kind of brought you over though, as far as like giving you the call and make what was it Orndorff like that kind of solidified it for you? Yeah, it was it was it was definitely one off and solidified it for me. But uh, with the likes of you know Eric Bischoff knowing who I was um, and taking me in, but um, Paul Wondoff sort of sort of took a liking to me and, uh, and um, he showed me the ropes even in his own time. He used to take me down to the power plant and make me roll with his son and just teach me stuff. And it was just amazing. And it was amazing, you know, even watching Wondoff work and watching guys like Ric Flair work and. You know, Nature Boy there. Work, those guys are just a master at, the, at their own game. They're unbelievable. They're, it's priceless what they do. It's just they do things just off the cuff that look so real, you know. Um, there's no effort in one, what, what they do. It's just amazing. And I thought, wow, this is, this is, this is just amazing. I really wanted to, um, I, I really wanted to um, learn the art of entertainment because that's basically what wrestling was, you know. Obviously, you learn to chain wrestle and learn all the moves and everything and that and the lingo and so on. But it was amazing. I remember going through the trials. Uh, Paul Orndorff was getting me ready for the trials. And there was about 70-odd athletes at the time, I think, and Bob Sapp was one of them there. Um, I didn't know Bob uh, until I got to WCW and we were doing the trials. Um, we took a liking to each other and we started talking and he was interested in Australia and he kept saying to me, you know, I want to go back to Australia. He goes, I want to go to Australia. I've never been. And Bob was just a massive, massive unit, 180 kilo of just lean muscle, just an absolute monster, but a great guy, just a great sense of humor, absolute laugh. And he was just so charismatic. I've never seen a guy be so naturally charismatic when the cameras turned on. Um, and we both got through the trials and we both got picked up by WCW and we both signed amongst a few others. Um, 
and that's and that was it. And then we went off touring, you know, the countrysides to start off with, doing a lot of you know, a lot of matches during the week, two or three matches a week. Um, it was it was fantastic. Do you remember some of the matches that you ended up having? I guess it would just be house show matches. Well, there were house show matches, yeah, at the time. Um, oh God, going back, I'd have to go through the whole whole list, but. Um, I remember wrestling against Ric Flair's son at, at one stage in a tag. Um, D'Lo Brown. D'Lo Brown, I fought D'Lo Brown. In, that was in W1. That was, I fought with the great Mooder and uh, George the Animal. Sorry, not George the Animal. So, um, Abdul the Butcher. Mm-hmm. Myself, Bob Abdul the Butcher and the great Mooder wrestled the four-way with Americans. Um, I wrestled with uh, Descaris, Junior Descaris, the Mexican champion. Uh, we did a masked match, you know, a tag. That's when I broke my. That's when I. <laughs> you want to hear a story? I remember doing. We did a tag match in Japan as one of the main events, and I, I matched up with uh, Junior Descaris, and I wore a mask that day. And um, so we both we both come out and wrestle this thing, and the, mine was supposed to be a false finish. Obviously, he had to finish the match, but my finish move was off the top rope, so I slammed the guy into the turnbuckle bounce off the rope, hit him with a bat stick, he hits the ground. I climb up to the, the top of the rope and do this massive flying kick towards the middle of the ring. I mean, he feeds up. He's supposed to feed up, but my opponent was a bit too far away, but because I was already up on the rope and I gave an indication I was going, I just threw myself off. I knew I was too far, but when I hit him, I hit him flush with, I couldn't even pull the kick. I hit him flush because I had nothing, but when I landed, I landed on my uh, on my left foot and snapped my snapped my knee completely. And uh, I've rolled him up. It was a false finish. He kicked out, but I kept saying to him, I've broken my knee, but I'm talking to a Japanese guy that doesn't speak hmm. proper English, doesn't understand proper English. And um, he's crawled to the corner to tag his mate in, his partner in, and I've tagged Descaris in. But as I stood up, I collapsed again because my knee gave way completely. And um, I had to come in. To save Descaris, he was doing a Frankenstein off the top rope. Um, and one of the other opponents intervened. So I just had to come in and just punch him out and, and out I go. But as I've stepped in to punch him, I've leaned on my left leg and I went to punch, but I couldn't even pull the punch. My leg gave way and I caught him flush also. And he laid the boots into me and I powdered out <laughs> onto the ground. He laid a few more kicks into me and I said, I've broken my fucking knee. You know, mm. he gave me one last kick and walked off. You know, we ended up winning the match irrespective, but I think the crowd thought it was a big sell. You know, they didn't see the legitimacy in uh, in me having a broken knee. Well, they didn't know. And so I got down the back and the doctor had a look and he goes, yep, 100% broken. So I had to end up having a full knee reconstruction. And is that why old... yeah, your wrestling career kind of uh, got cut short? Basically that injury killed it? That injury, yeah, that injury just destroyed it. That injury destroyed it, but Having said that, no, no, that that did hurt my that did hurt my career. But at the time, this is quite quite funny. In two thousand and two, I think it was, or two thousand and one, uh, I was I was back in Melbourne because uh, I was I did some acting over the years too, and I got a lead role as the villain in Scooby Doo the movie, and it was filmed here in Australia. Eighty percent of it was filmed here in Australia, and twenty percent was filmed in 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 the United States. And I remember seeing Eric Bischoff, and I said, Eric, I need to speak to you. And he says, what about it? I said, look, I just got this offer. Um, 
for an American blockbuster movie, uh, Scooby-Doo, kids movie. And he says, oh, yeah. He says, whereabouts are they filming in the States? I said, no, they're filming in Australia. And he says, what do you want to do? I said, I'm asking for permission if I can't leave. If I can leave. I know I've just signed with you guys. Um, but I, I know you were talking about releasing me on TV soon. And he says, we can wait. No, it's not a problem. So he, with his blessing, I went to Australia for three months to film. And it was during that time, the end of the three months, that uh, WCW got bought out, went bust and got bought out by WWE at the time. Yes. Um, and Bob rang me and said, look, we're out of a job. It didn't really worry me because I had a no-fire contract at the time, along with a few others. Um, but Bob said to me, oh, what are we going to do? What are, you know? What am I going to do now? You know, I need to earn money. And I said, wait till I get back to the States, and which I did. I got back to the States. And I remember saying to Bob, do you want to fight? And he says, not a chance. He goes, I'm scared. And he was. He was such a big man, but he was he was like a little kid. And he said to, I said to him, come on, Bob. I said, you can make a lot, a lot of money in K1. He says, are you crazy? He goes, those motherfuckers hit like steam trains. I said, Bob, you don't realize your own strength. If I can teach you some techniques, let me just get you over there. Let me speak to the motors i'll get there. and i was going over to watch an event in vegas at the time and i asked the japanese i said do you mind if i bring him over for a meeting and they were quite willing so i brought bob over to vegas at the Bellagio hotel where the japanese met him and literally at first sight they saw how big he was and they thought wow we've got a winner here and they took him to dinner and i'll never forget this bob obviously wrestled for money fought for money and the Japanese, well, they offered him some cash dollars there at dinner, and that pretty much won him over. But I said to Bob before he went into that meeting, I said, don't get bribed with anything. Have a listen to what they've got to say, and whatever they offer you, take it away and think about it. He did totally the opposite. <laughs> he signed, he's, he's an absolute fool. He signed a five-year deal. That's five fights, a day, five fights a year. It's 25 fights in five years, right? but they were paying him absolute peanuts. At the start, when he signed the contract, he thought it was great because he was getting paid, he was getting looked after, he all his meals were getting paid for, his accommodation and everything else. But I got really upset with the Japanese because I told them not to do that, and they went against my will. But at the end of the day, they're the boss, no problem. But a year later, they rang me, they said, we need you to come back. Bob's requested your services to train him again. And I said, I'm not interested. And they said, look, you can't, we can't deal with him, Sam. You need to come over. So I went over on my conditions, um, of which they said, yep, no problem. And I went over and trained Bob, and we ended up winning a world title, a kickboxing world title uh, with him. He trained hard, and but Bob was a lazy trainer, let me tell you. He hated doing the hard work. But let me tell you, he if he got angry, he was an absolute monster. He'd punch holes through anything. It didn't matter. Yeah, he could have so, been one of the greats. I mean, he destroyed Ernesto Hoosh twice, which twice, is insane. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was I that was responsible for getting him into um, to K1. I was the guy that got him there. I'm also the guy that helped him when he fought Perry the Refrigerator in Chicago in a boxing match mm -hmm. and stopped him in the first round. We were training at the uh, power plant at the time. So there's a lot of history between Bob and I. We lived together in Atlanta. Um Absolute gentleman. I don't care what anyone says about him. He's super intelligent. Um, the unfortunate thing is it was just his lack of ability and his laziness to to train um, that didn't allow him to get far in the sport. But 
commercially, endorsements, got further than anyone else, probably earned more money than any Peter Ertz, uh, Ernesto Hoost or anyone else for that matter. Yeah. Yep, you're right. His charisma, the way they were able to market him through the roof. I mean, he's just oh, look at massive, him as a star. Massive hit. He'd pick up an apple. When I remember him going to Japan, he said to me, "Watch what I'm going to do." And I remember him pick up an uh, an apple in one hand and just crushing it. And I looked at him like, "The hell?" You know? He goes, "Don't worry." He says, "I oh, know." And he started learning the language and just that small little bits of Japanese that he was throwing out there. The crowds loved him. You know, he could be that big six foot four, 180 kilo guy that could literally buckle up like a little kid and act like a little kid. And everyone just went, wow, they took this massive liking to him. And there was a lot to learn from Bob. As much as he probably wasn't the most talented fighter, he was the greatest entertainer K1 ever happened. But the problem was K1 thought, we've got one guy now who's massive, hasn't got the best style in the world. Let's try and get others. So they started getting guys like Chohoman, which was the... Um, a fighter from South Korea who was seven foot two, um, a hundred and I think it was 170 kilo or something, 160 kilo, big, big ex basketballer. They started getting um, sumo champions coming in, you know, like um, uh, or the, the sumo yokozunos. Um, they started getting him, who Bob Ford also. They started getting all these freak shows, you know, pardon the punt. And but what it did, it created the wrong form of entertainment. And it started killing K1 because there was no more great fights anymore. They were just two big monsters. It's just like two big dinosaurs punching it out. And it was pretty sad, really, really sad. And it, it absolutely killed the sport. Yeah, I feel like they loved the freak show stuff. And then when he did MMA, they did that as well. Like he would even fight Minowa Man, who was, you know, obviously like a third of his size, but a very, very skilled fighter. I mean, they would do crazy, crazy fights over there. Yeah, look, I, I was there that day. It was an open-air arena. I was sitting in the front row with uh, Bill Goldberg, who you're well aware of who mm -hmm. Bill Goldberg is. He's a great oh, yeah. friend of mine. Um, Bill and I spent some crazy times together. He's I wrestled with Bill here in on Australian tour also. So Bill and I go a long way. So he's an absolute personal friend of mine. But uh, I remember sitting um, ringside and watching the fight, and Bob was all over Minotaur, Noguera, absolutely all over him until the last... I think it was the, it actually pole drove him straight into the ground head first. I thought that was the, but Minotoya, don't ask me where he got that second life from. I thought he snapped his neck. Um, he got up, continued fighting, and he knew it was a matter of time that Bob was going to run out of steam. And that's exactly what he did and caught him in an arm bar and nearly ripped his arm off. It was an absolutely amazing, amazing uh, performance by Bob that day, but he couldn't capitalize, just didn't have the gas tank. Oh, yeah. One of the greatest fights in Pride history, which is crazy to say, but it's true. And he almost beat the, uh, at this point in time, obviously this is a little bit before kind of Fedor gets gets there, but he was basically, uh, Big Nog was the biggest, uh, best heavyweight in the world. Yes. So yeah, he was. Bob almost got the biggest win ever over the best fighter in the world at that point. Yeah, yeah. Look, definitely Nog, Nog was no one to push over. He was he was the best in the world. I trained with Nog in Japan um, when I first started my MMA career also. Um, when, you know, when Kancho Ishii, the head honcho of, of K1, asked whether there was going to be any K1 fighters to take on MMA fighters, I was the first guy to put up my hand. Everyone thought I was an idiot, you know. And I fought the likes of Heath Herring, Leota Machida, mm -hmm. you know. Yep. Uh, Stefan and I put all those guys and you know I'm so grateful that I did you know 
I've done the whole circle of life and, and now I continue teaching what I just what I used to do well. Pretty kind of crazy if you just think about it, like you just raise your hand and like, all right, I'll fight, you know, Heath Herring and Machida and these, you know, these veterans of MMA, really. And I mean, these guys that have a lot more experience than you do. Yeah, but look, as I said to you before, I was one about challenges. And when I say, you know, I put up my hand to fight, I put up my hand to fight, but on the conditions that I was able to get and the Japanese were able to provide me with the right trainers, because I was living in Japan at the time. And I did say to him, yep, I'll do it on the proviso that you get me the best Brazilian jiu-jitsu trainers in the world, best wrestling Japanese uh, coaches. Um, and we brought them all together. We made a team, a team about it. And um, it was awesome. You know, it was awesome. And I, it didn't worry me about trying to put on an armbar or trying to put on a guillotine on a fighter. It was about me defending those things, knowing what they were, but defending, understanding the principle of me getting back to my feet and fighting from where I fought best. You know, I wasn't stupid enough to to hang on the ground with guys and trying to put chokes on, you know, black belt Brazilian jiu-jitsu guys. How crazy is that? You know, I knew that I had to get back on my feet and I used to make life hard for him. So Liotta was my biggest test. That fight there till this very day, I've watched it over and over and over again. And it doesn't matter who I speak to. People think I won that. They, they, they gave one judge to him, one judge to me. And the third was a split and they gave it to him. Obviously, being hometown again because he was the favor, the flavor of the month uh, at that particular time. But hey, we could never get a rematch. We asked for a rematch so many times, never got a rematch. And they knew if they got a rematch, they were going to get destroyed. Simple as that. Yes. And I was happy to do it at any time. But you know, that's as I said to you. For me, it's all about you know this this massive journey, this this journey that's been so knowledgeable. Um, that there wouldn't be enough books to write about it. It was just just beautiful, just absolutely beautiful. So as we wind it down, head towards the finish line, you've been you know in the World Grand Prix of K1. You finished to third place. I mean, you've been a best-of-the-best best tournament champion, karate champion, Muay Thai champion, uh, kickboxing champion. You've done pro wrestling. You've been successful in MMA. What's kind of the lasting legacy of Slam and Sam? Well, basically, as I said to you at the start of this conversation, for me, it's about passing on my knowledge to the youth of today, the future of our sport. Um, look, I, I run a little campaign called I Am A Fighter, which you'll probably hear more about in the next yeah, few months coming up. Now, I pretty much started this campaign about a year ago, year and a half ago, to be quite honest. Um, not because, uh, Not because, you know, being a fighter means, you know, because I'm rough, tough or being a triple world champion or anything else. Because for me, the word fighter means not giving up. It means fighting against adversities, fighting harder when the chips are down and so on. And that's what I want to teach the kids of today. Not everyone who trains has to be a fighter, but you need to be a fighter in life. Everyone fights a battle that you and I don't know about. And that's why I'm saying you just be careful what you say and what you do with people. So in all my elements of training others in today's world, I just want people to be the best version of themselves. For me, it's not about creating a world champion fight. It's about me creating a world champion person. Simple. Um, I still teach professionals. I've got UFC boys at the moment currently fighting that I teach. Um, I've got kickboxing, male and female, and kids coming up, and I've got a great potential. There's great potential coming up through my, through, through my school. Um, but at the end of the day, the general public, who I also admire and, and train with me, it's about creating world champion people. So the legacy I want to leave 
is sure my career and what I've done, but more so my knowledge to other people. I want them to move on and create something for themselves. Definitely a combat sports legend, a tough SOB. And you also had a, a heart attack a couple of years ago, right? Triple bypass. Is that is that correct? Oh, yeah. Back in 2018, this 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 story here, <laughs> this will tell you exactly what sort of a person I am. One of my boys, Jimmy Crute, who's current UFC fighter at the moment, was fighting on a promotion called Hex for a world title. And that particular day, I was feeling down for some reason. I wasn't even sure. I was just lethargic. I thought I'd overworked. A bit of stress going on with, with other businesses and so on. And I rocked up to the event, taped up his hands, and I was taking him through pad, pad work. We were the main event of the night. And I was feeling heavy-chested. I didn't know why. And I'd eaten in a hurry that afternoon. And I came home, and I said to my wife, I said, I really don't feel like going to the event tonight. She goes, Sam, she goes, you got your boy Jimmy fighting a world title. Come on. And I said, yeah, you know what? I'm going to get this over and done with and come home. So I went there. And it was about 11 o'clock at night, and my chest started getting really heavy. And it felt like severe heartburn, absolute severe heartburn. And it just kept growing and growing and growing. And Jimmy and my boys asked, they go, you're right. I said, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. I would never give up on anything. You know, I wouldn't tell them. I had too much pride to tell them that I, w I wasn't feeling well. And I remember 10 minutes before we walked out, I huddled everyone up as I do normally and wished everyone all the best and gave Jimmy his instructions and the team of what to do. And, and at that particular time, as I finished, I was just about to turn around and say, guys, listen, I'm not feeling well, but I just couldn't bring myself to doing it. Anyway, they called us out. We went out and fought. And I was in the corner calling instructions. And Sam Greco never drinks water in a corner. And that particular day, I was calling out information to Jimmy, but my mouth was so dry. And I kept drinking water. And I was running short of breath. And I thought, God, this is not right. But yet again, I couldn't leave the kid halfway. So I stayed there for five fucking rounds oh until he finished. He won the event. I grabbed him. It was supposed to be a photo opportunity. I said, I said, Jimmy, I said, I need to get down the back straight away. He goes, what's wrong, coach? I said, I said I'm not. He's okay, okay. So we run down the back, and I just sat on the ground. And Jimmy's dad's a nurse. And he's walked over to me. He goes, you all right? I said, no, I was sweating profusely. I said, you know what? I said, I'm not feeling well. I said, it might be the stress. It might be the food that I ate. I don't know what it is, but I'm feeling heavy in the chest and like a sharp pain. He goes, have you ever had it before? I said, yeah, it's like heartburn. You know, it could be a thing of stress. I thought, you know what? I'm going to drive home. I'm only 10 minutes away. I'm going to drive home. And I'm going to have a shower and, and rest up, and I should be all right by tomorrow. And he let me go. Anyway, as I was getting up, my mind was telling me, go home. But my stomach was telling me, get yourself to a hospital straight away. And I learned one thing in life is when your head tells you to do something and your gut tells you to do something else, follow your gut. So I did. I raced myself to the hospital. I went straight into emergency. And sure enough, I was having a, a heart attack and I had a 99% blockage in one of my arteries. Oh, my God. Um, my dad had identically the same thing 20-odd years ago. Um, he had stents put in uh, for his blockages. They did the same for me. They put one in. Uh, it lasted 15 months. And then I had another heart attack while I was doing jiu-jitsu. I called the ambulance, still well aware of what was happening. They took me back in. I had a re-blockage of that same stent. So it's amazing how history repeats itself. My dad had exactly the same thing. So obviously hereditary, and um, they said, we're not going to put stents in again. 
you need open heart surgery. And I thought, oh, fuck, okay. I said, is it urgent? And they said, well, it needs to be done. I said, look, I got one of my boys fighting in Canada on the UFC show. I said, do you mind if I, this was in June. I said, do you mind if I go and we'll do it after September? They said, not a chance in fucking hell. <laughs> not a chance. You need to get it done now. So, again, I'm still trying to follow this passion that I do. But I end up having it done um, back in last year. And, uh, yeah, since June last year, so it's nearly a year since I've had it done. I've had a triple bypass that cut pretty much the centre of my chest, straight up my left arm and down my left, my right calf, which they got arteries out of. They did a triple for me. And, um, yeah, I'm back to normal. I'm back in the training, back doing everything. I refuse to give up. Um, you know, it's easy for me to say, yeah, uh, this is all over for me now. And, you know, I've got an injury. I've had open heart surgery. I'm not the first nor the last either. And I just take every day as it comes. I enjoy my life, get on with my training, pass my knowledge on to others. So what? I look at my dad. My dad's an absolute legend. He's still alive today. He's had, he's had five bypasses. He's had a valve change. He's had bladder and bowel cancer. He's diabetic, insulin dependent. He's had his prostate done. I walk over to him and go, Dad, how are you going? He goes, yeah, good, son. There's the exact words. Hmm. Won't tell you otherwise. So I sort of learned a bit off him. Um, sometimes I could be too hard for my own good. But... Um, take precautionary measures. That's all I do now. And, you know, I pass on that knowledge to other people. I tell people all the time, you know, get checked out. You know, you get to a certain age in life, you know, get your men, your, you know, men's health done. You know, get, you get your checks done. I mean, I'm not sure how old you are, John, but at the end of the day, I tell everyone. It doesn't – I think people are afraid of the what if. If I do go to the doctor and he says to me that I have got something or – so what? At the end of the day, it might be a blessing in disguise. You might get it early. It might be, you know, repairable. It might be, uh, you know, might be curable to a certain degree, you know, rather than letting it go and letting it be late where there's no return, you know? Yep. So uh, they're the sort of things I learned, and, and that's why even now with training, uh, when my guys are injured or someone has an injury, I always stipulate even their training schedule. They have their training days, they have their training times, and they have their rest days. So they look forward to a rest day. But their rest day isn't just about lying in bed. Their rest day is doing rehab. Their rest day is doing massage. Their rest day is doing cryo or whatever it may be. You know, you need to do it. You need to do it. And a lot more coaches. I think the science of, of sport today is engaged more into the recovery side of things now. It's about getting their guys back up and going as quick as they can. And you are one tough SOB. Obviously, it's hereditary being a tough SOB uh, with you, which is great. Yeah. Hundred. I, I think it could be detrimental to you, to your health too, and that's the problem. I think I follow my dad's footsteps, and mm, he was just he was just probably too tough for his own good, and still is. Um, yeah, <laughs> he just refuses to give up. You tell him a reason why he can't. Tell him a reason why he can't do it. He'll give you a hundred by a can. Simple. <laughs> Definitely a tough SOB, and you yourself, tough SOB, 131 career combat sports victories. Please give us some of your plugs where everybody can kind of check you out. By all means, if you want to find out more about which I'm still updating also, but you can get on my website on www.samgreco.com.au or my Instagram, samgreco underscore K1. Um, yeah, guys, feel free to uh, ask me anything. Um, through my website or on uh, social media, whatever it may be. But uh, other than that, 
be healthy, be safe, and um, hands up at all times. Protect yourself at all times. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.